Well, we're in a series that we're calling For Everyone, and we're looking at Paul's letter to the Romans, where Paul introduces himself and the message that he's seeking to share. And today we come to chapter five. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans five. I'm gonna read the first 11 verses. And now we're gonna look at those 11 verses in reverse order, because I think it'll help us understand what's going on a little better if we look at the second half first and the first half second. You'll see how that makes sense in a minute. So Romans five, chapter one, verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We're going to look at the second half first, because the second half is all about the drama that Paul's been laying out for four chapters now. And so you'll notice at the beginning of verse six, it says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, that's taking us all the way back to the beginning of the letter and talking about our predicament. So we're going to start by looking at the, at the middle section of chapter 5 because there Paul gives us a review. He's reviewing what he's talked about in the first four chapters. Now the review is kind of interesting in that he says, you were powerless, but God did something about your being powerless. So here's where the review begins. You were once powerless. You were not able to do anything about your situation. You were hopeless and helpless. So let me ask you, when's the last time, or when was a recent time when you felt powerless? You were in a situation and you couldn't do anything to change the situation. Maybe you're late for work and you're behind a whole row of school buses that stop every driveway for the little guys to get in line and they take their good old time getting on the bus, right? Or maybe you're powerless watching a football game and you know what play they should run. You know who should be blocked. You know how he should put his head down and make the first down and you're powerless to do anything about it because you're watching, you're not playing. I felt powerless a couple of weeks ago. On my flight to Chicago, I get on the plane and everything's moving early because the scuttlebutt all around the plane and through the uh, officials was um, weather's coming in. So we're hoping to get out before the weather. And so uh, we're on early, bags were checked, you know, everybody's, but we're all ready to roll. Sit in the seat, 
A lot of banging outside, a lot of doors slamming, things like that. Boy, that doesn't sound right. Eventually, the pilot comes on. Um, Yet, just to let you know, everything's fine. We're going to be a few minutes more because this plane was originally scheduled to go from Philly to Los Angeles, but it's been rerouted to go to Chicago. Therefore, we have too much fuel. We won't be able to land safely in Chicago, but all the fuel to L.A., so they need to remove some of the fuel. It'll only take five minutes. Fifteen minutes later, it comes back on. Well, they're still unloading that fuel. I guess they're more efficient at putting it in than they are at taking it out. Twenty minutes later, they're still getting rid of the fuel in the thing. I'm thinking, we, should have, we could have gone to L.A. back to Chicago faster than we are sitting on the runway. Well, by now, we kind of push back from the gate. We taxi out. We're not on the runway five minutes when the pilot says, Well, we missed the window. The weather's now in. All the air routes are shut down. We'll be sitting here for at least 30 minutes. It was only a two-hour, 45-minute delay, which meant I missed lunch with friends in Chicago, which meant I was ticked off. And as I sat in that little aluminum tube, being ticked off in my little seat, 11D, there I was, I was absolutely, I couldn't do a darn thing about it. I couldn't tell them to let me off. I couldn't make them fly the plane. I don't care about the weather. I think we can get through it, right? I couldn't do anything about it. You ever feel like that? Powerless. Well, that's what Paul describes at the beginning of this letter. We are absolutely powerless. We're in a situation of being separated and alienated from God, and we are powerless to do anything about it. We're stuck Hopeless and helpless. Now, here's, a, here's an easy outline for you to keep the first few chapters, the first eight chapters of Romans in view, right? So if you're wondering how all this stuff fits together, here we go, simple little outline. Chapters one through three give us the problem. And what's the problem? We are powerless. We're powerless because of our rebellion. We're powerless because that rebellion has brought about alienation and separation. We're, power- We're in a situation of being separated from our creator, being alienated from him. We can do all that we want to rev up the righteousness RPMs, and we're never going to be able to create or draft a resume good enough to get access back to God. That's the problem. We're powerless. But then in the middle of chapter 3, Paul begins to give the solution. And the second half of three in chapter four, he gives the solution. And the solution is justification. Now remember, justification is a declaration. Justification is language that puts us into the courtroom. And justification means at the end of the trial, the judge bangs his gavel and says, you're in the right. You're not guilty. All these accusations will not be leveled against you. The opposite of justification is condemnation. We are not condemned. We are justified. Well, that raises the question then. On what basis? Like if our righteousness record doesn't cut it, if we've got lots of condemnations and few commendations, how in the world do we get justification? Well, because the resumes have been swapped. Jesus lived a perfect resume, no condemnations at all, all commendations, and he offers to swap resumes with us. He takes our resume of condemnation, gives us his resume of commendation, and on the basis of the faith transaction of swapping resumes, we are declared in the right. That's the solution. And then, beginning in chapter 5, 
the consequences or the results of that are lived out. And so there's a simple little outline for you to keep in mind of the first half of Romans. Romans has 16 chapters. The first eight chapters, there's an outline. The problem one through three, the solution three and four, and beginning in chapter five, now we get the consequences. That's why the first word of chapter five is, therefore, on the basis of the problem and the solution, here are the consequences. Because of the problem, God solved it in Jesus, and here are the consequences. Here are the benefits. Here are the entailments. Here are the results of the solution provided by Jesus. See how that works? Now that we kind of understand the drama of the second part, powerless, but God solves the problem we were powerless to solve, let's go back to the beginning of the chapter and look at the consequences or the benefits that the gospel brings. The first one is peace. Did you notice that? In fact, it, look at the first verse here. Therefore, right, so everything's happened before. Problem, solution, here's the first consequence. Therefore, since we've been justified, right, that, that's the declaration, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Peace with God, yes, ah. Oh. What is peace? Oh, peace means that regardless of what's going on on the outside, you're okay on the inside. You live with poise. You transcend your circumstances. You live not being bothered. That's not what it says. Philippians talks about that. That is the peace of God. That's not what Paul talks about here. Paul's talking here about having peace with God. That's not subjective. That's objective. That's a reality that can bring about the internal change but peace with God is different. Now remember, if you have peace with God as a result or a consequence of the solution being applied, that must mean that where there is peace, there used to be war. And that's exactly what the beginning of Romans says and what the whole Bible says. What's the problem? We have rebelled and in a sense declared war on God because two people are claiming the same thing. Let me explain it like this. Suppose that you go out and you buy a brand new car this coming week. The car of your dreams, right? Maybe it's an Audi A8, maybe it's a BMW, maybe it's a, the car of your dreams, right? It, it's, the, it's the car you've been with. You buy it this past week and you come in and you kind of want to show it off, right? So rather than park in the far reaches of the parking lot and wander to the building where no one can see your new flashy toy, you have the valet team park it for you. So you pull up and you get out. You're very loud so people notice you got a new car. And the valet kind of takes the car and the valet takes your car and parks it somewhere in the parking lot. You come in and pay careful attention to the sermon, memorizing every word. You then leave with bated breath, looking for opportunities to apply what's been said because, yes, you want to live this message out. And when you come out, you see another member of Calvary Church slipping into your car, closing the door and driving away. And you say to the valet, what's going to say? I don't know what happened. That person said it was their car. It's not their car. It's my car. I've had my car for two days. What would you do? Well, when you have two people claiming right to one car, you've got a war. When you've got two people claiming the right to the throne of the world and your life, you've got a war. God created the universe and God created each of us. And he says, mine. 
And he didn't do that to be selfish. He didn't do that because he's egotistical. He didn't do that because he wants to make our lives miserable. Since he designed the universe and he built us, he knows how life works. And so he says, you're mine, and this is how you live a fulfilling life. This is how you live an abundant life. Live it like this, with God at the center. But rather than live like that, we have kick God off the throne out of the center and said, well, we know better than you do. We'll call the shots around here. We'll make our own decisions. Heck with you. When you have two parties laying claim to one car, one throne, you've got a war. And that's what we did. We pointed to what God says is his. And we've said mine. And there's a war. But through Jesus, we now have peace. We can be reconciled. We can be brought back into a right relationship with God. We can now submit without consequence. That's why at the end of the verses I read, reconciliation is prominent because that's what peace results in. We have peace with God. Now, that's past tense, as Paul writes. We have peace with God. That's past. So, if you've traded in your performance plan for the grace faith plan, that's a pet. That peace with God is past. Jesus accomplished that already. That's done. But now Paul mentions something in the present. Then right in the next verse, he's something in the present. Here's what he says. We have access. Look, verse two, through whom we have gained access. Uh, we live in a world in which access control is big business. People want to control who and what has access, right? There are whole companies that do nothing more than create and deliver access control. I, I was thinking this past week as I was looking at that verse, I have access to lots and lots of places. I'd be willing to bet I have access to places that none of you in this room have. Let me just, and, and you have access to places I don't, nobody else does, right? But we all have limited access, so here's how it works. I have access to my garage. So I pull up and hit the little button on the top of my car. Don't, I don't know how to, you know, sync them up, but somebody did that. I hit the button, my garage door goes up, which is a good thing, because I don't have keys to my house. I only have a garage door, but it opens my garage door. If the door's locked to the house, I'm screwed. I sit in the car and wait till my wife gets home with a key. I don't know, I have access to the garage, not to the house, actually, I have access to the garage. Most of the time, the door's open into the house, so then I have access to the house. I also have a key fob that gets me into Calvary Church. So I can come up, even if the doors are locked, I got a little fob, hit it, beep, and the door opens. Now, some of you in this room have key fobs to Calvary Church, but I'd be willing to bet our key fobs are a little different. My key fob will not only get me from the outside in, my key fob will get me into the office complex. So yours can't do that. Oh, maybe you can. Maybe if I'm missing stuff, I'm coming to look for you with the key fob access. I, I swipe my key fob and the door then opens to the office complex. I also have a key on my Calvary key fob ring that opens my office door. You see, I've got access to Calvary Church on my key fob ring. I don't carry it there. I don't have them right now, but I've got access. I also have um, access. I have a key fob that will get me into Univest. Um, 
I'm on the board at Univest, and they gave me, I've never used it yet, but I, I don't think it works the vault, but, but it does work the doors. <laughs> so I can go up to a Univest, and I can swipe my, and the doors at Univest, we could try it later if you want, but I can open the doors at the Univest, right? I have key fobs that will get me into a couple of other companies in the area. You see, I've got a collection of access fobs that will get me into different places, and I'd be willing to bet none of you in this room have the same collection of access that I have. But you have access too. And you know what Paul says? Long before there were key fobs, long before there were garage door openers, Paul says, in the present, in the past we have peace with God, in the present we have gained access into this grace that allows you to stand in the presence of God. It's almost as if Paul says, in the gospel, you get the faith kifab. You get the kifab of grace. Notice, you don't have access to God. You have access into grace. The kifab gets you into grace, but grace is what opens the door to the presence of God. When you read through the Old Testament, the Old Testament kind of revolves around the temple. What was the temple? The temple's all about access control. The Gentiles can't get close enough. The women can't get close enough. The non-Levites can't get close enough. The priest can only go so far, and only the high priest has access into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies, Paul says, all that's been changed. In Jesus, you can have access into grace, which grants you access into the very presence and acceptance of God. That's amazing, right? In the past, we have peace with God. In the present, we have access into grace. It's not a performance thing that grants you entrance into God. And in the future, we have hope. Peace past, access present, hope for the future. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. It's interesting as you read through those first few chapters of Romans. I encourage you to do that, by the way. You know, we'll finish chapter five next week. So go back and read the first few chapters with that outline in mind. Um, as you read through, you realize glory has kind of been one of Paul's themes so far. And here's what he says. You can learn about the glory of God when you look at creation. Now, the word glory in Hebrew means weight, right? We are to give God glory, which means he is to have the most weight in our lives. He's to be the priority. If somebody has glory, something has glory, it has priority. You, see, you learn of God's glory from creation. Paul tells us you see God's glory perfectly in Jesus Right? So make Jesus the center, make him the priority, give him the most weight. And we will one day, in that peace with God, access to God, will result in the hope that we will actually be in the glorious presence of God. And we won't be melted or consumed, right? We'll be there. Oh, and we will share in that glory. We will live as we were designed to live. And so when we give God the weight that he deserves, we then begin to experience some of that glory ourselves. I remember reading an old theologian a number of years ago. I can't, I tried to find it this week. I couldn't find it. So some of you know where it is. Let me know. This whole theologian said, followers of Jesus await the day 
when we will be in the glorious presence of God and we will share in that glory. And then he said this, and that means if you and I were to see a brother or sister in Christ on that day today, if we could like catch a glimpse of what so-and-so Christian is going to look like then, we would all be tempted to bow down and worship them today. Yeah, right. We will share kind of in that glory. Okay, now here's a word we have to point out. See that word, hope? Here's what we mean when we say, oh, I really hope, hope, hope I win the lottery. Yeah, well, I hope I win, not you. But, but we use it as a wit. You know what? The odds are like eight skillion billion to, not, to one, right? And so I'll tell you what, you, you want to take those odds, give me your 10 bucks and I'll give you those same odds, all right? Uh, but we hope but we mean it as a wish, a dream. It's never going to happen, but we're holding out hope. That's never how the Bible uses the word hope. The word hope doesn't mean, I really hope I'm going to win. I, no, the Bible uses the word hope as confidence, assurance. Here's what hope means. If you hold a ticket, and it's a real ticket, you didn't buy it from a scalper on you know, some cheesy website. If you really got a ticket, you hope the ticket will get you into the event. So believe it or not, I've gotten pictures this morning of members of Calvary Church that are right now sitting in Wembley Stadium watching the Eagles game, and they sent me pictures to be encouraged, I guess, right? Now, if they had a real... My guess is that when they went to the gate to get in, holding the real tickets, they hoped the tickets would get them in. They were fully expecting. They were confident that the ticket was going... That's the way the Bible speaks of hope. It's never a wish. I'm not quite sure. It's confidence. It's assurance. If you've made all the payments on your mortgage for 30 years, you're confident when you make the last payment, you now own the home. That's the confidence, right? So we don't hope, wish as if it's a million to one shot it's ever going to happen. We have confidence and assurance that it is going to happen. And here's what Paul says. Here's why you can have that confidence. If Jesus died for you, the way it says in verse 8, if he died for your sins and stayed on the cross for you when you were his enemy, do you think he's going to desert you now that, he, now that he's your friend? If Jesus took care of our biggest problem, don't you think you can trust him to take care of the lesser problems? That's kind of what, that's the hope and confidence that we live with. So right at the beginning of chapter five, when Paul begins to lay out the results, he gives us one past, peace with God. He gives us one present, access to God, and one future, hope for the glory of God that we'll see and experience and we will share in ourselves. But then he moves from that. I don't know about you. I wish he would have stopped there. But he didn't. You know, biblical writers kind of have that habit. When I want them to end, they don't end. Because he goes on and says this. We're going to have joy. But look at the context of our joy. Not only so, but we glory in our sufferings. Why didn't you stop with the hope and the glory thing, right? Why didn't you stop with access and peace? Now we're into sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. So here's what Paul says. He's enough of a realist to say, three results of being a follower of Jesus. You have peace with God, 
access into grace and the very presence of God and hope for a glorious future with him forever and ever that nothing can take away. But between now and there, it's a little bit of a journey. Between now and there, there'll be some potholes. Between now and there, there'll be a little shining of the silver. Between now and then, we've got some stuff we're going to clean up a little bit. Between now and then, you've got some refinement that the Spirit is going to work in you. But if you keep the three in mind, if you keep that triad in mind, we'll be able to have joy even in the midst of suffering, right? So if we keep in mind peace, access, and hope, peace, access, keep those in your mind. As you walk that road and you experience some suffering, some difficulty, when you experience some trouble and trial and tribulation, as we all will, you realize that God hasn't somehow abandoned you. God hasn't put you on the shelf or on the side. God's saying, no, 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 it's all part of the process. You see, you, you have some blemishes and rough edges that have to be worked off. And what better way to work them off than a little bit of trial and friction on the outside that will bring perseverance. And perseverance will build your character and character will one day be realized in hope. Kind of works like this. Amy talked about Eric being a trainer and what he's going to use to build relationships and what the family's going to do is CrossFit and other fitness opportunities in the lives of other people. I'm not sure if any of you have ever done CrossFit or gone to a gym or anything like that. I'll tell you what, between what you want to look like and what you presently look like, there's some suffering on that road. Just letting you know, right? <laughs> between the future you're hoping, oh, that's probably a wish hope. Between the future you'd like and the present you have, there's going to be some suffering, and that suffering will bring perseverance. And that perseverance will build your character. And that character will one day lead you to the realization of that body, that health, that wisdom, that person that God wants you to be. But here's the key. You won't have joy in your suffering. And you won't persevere when the going gets tough. And your character will not be built if you don't keep the triad in mind. Peace with God. Access into grace. And hope for the glory of God. You keep those three benefits of following Jesus in mind. And when God applies the pressure to build perseverance and character, we can have joy and celebrate even in the midst of suffering. Just part of the benefit package of being a follower of Jesus. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. We're going to sing a song that exactly shares what we've been talking about for the last couple minutes. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for these benefits that we've talked about, benefits that we haven't earned and do not deserve, benefits that we can never pay for, benefits that oftentimes we ignore and don't give thought to, but benefits that really do give us a sense of conviction and discipline 
And Lord, I pray that you would help our understanding of peace and access and hope to be so rooted in our hearts that when hard times and good times come, we'll celebrate and be joyful because the sovereign king of the universe calls us friend, calls us follower. And one day, one glorious day, we'll be welcomed into your presence forever because of what Jesus has done for us. We pray in his name. Amen.